Hey everybody, welcome to the Beautiful Shifts podcast. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Chantel. We're so excited to share with you some inspiring stories. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Now it's easier to walk I can see the road before me I am not afraid to fall All right, welcome to the podcast today. We have Tanya Tool with us and She's the founder of a nonprofit called Holding Out Help. Yeah, she's going to talk more about that to us today and also just about her background. So thanks for being with us, Tanya. We're so excited to talk with you. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, I'll read Tanya's bio. Tanya earned a Bachelor of Science degree in business management from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She worked in the banking industry as a regional sales manager before choosing to have children and become a stay-at-home mother of three. In 2007, her passion for those who come from a polygamous background grew after taking in a family from the local um, AUB all-red polygamous community. In 2008, she launched a nonprofit organization called Holding Out Help. Her desire to continue to encourage and give hope to those who come from a polygamous lifestyle. In her free time, Tanya loves the outdoors, Bible study, dates with her daughters, and crime shows. So we're excited to have you here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's awesome. Um, so maybe you could tell us a fun fact about yourself so we can get to know you a little bit. Oh my gosh. I didn't think about that. Um, fun fact. I would say I, oh my gosh, you girls just seriously just stumped me. I mean, fun <laughs> fact about me other than I help people out of polygamy. That's usually the most stunning fact. I mean, like, that is a pretty fun fact. Yeah. That is very interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a very fun fact. Yeah. Well, we're excited to hear more about what goes into that. That's just super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned in your outline that you were a gymnast and you started training for the Olympics. Maybe you could tell us about that. Oh, yes. That was my fun fact in there. It's been Mm -hmm. so long since I looked at it. Yeah. You know, I did. I was getting ready to train for the Olympics when I was only 10 years old. And that was my, my big claim to fame. And then I broke my arm and too much pressure from the parents. And I said, I'm out. So. Quit. Oh wow! As a gymnast, what was that? As a gymnast, you were training as a gymnast. As a gymnast, but then gymnastics takes you to a place where you can do all other kind of sports because you, I mean, it's it uses every aspect of your body and coordination mm-hmm. and stuff. So I ended up diving, um, did drill team, um, track and field. I still did gymnastics, competing, and then. Uh, uh, switched over to cheerleading in college just for a year before I had to quit to work my way through school. So, oh wow! And where did yeah. you grow up? Nebraska. So Omaha, Nebraska is my hometown, okay. and then went to school in Lincoln, Nebraska, for college at the University of Nebraska. Okay, so. okay, that's awesome. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, um, childhood was crazy. Um, grew up with a couple of alcoholic parents and. Um, my mother died of alcoholism at a pretty young age. Um, uh, my parents had what I would refer to as sex parties in the home. Oh, wow. And I just remember at a super young age, don't remember any, uh, sexual abuse necessarily happening, but I did remember locking myself in the only room in the house to protect myself. So I remember crawling in between like a toilet and a wall. And I was in fetal position, and I, if I could have disappeared into that wall, I would have disappeared. So pretty mm-hmm. rough, rough childhood. However, one of those pivotal times, it was a family that took me in when I was in seventh grade and changed my life for the better. So 
it, it all turned out well. Oh, wow. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, were you an only child? No, we, I had two other siblings. Found out I had another sibling later on in life, but um, all three of his kids moved in with his family, these strangers, for a bit. And oh, wow. then they moved out, and I stayed with them. So, yeah. Oh, wow. wow. That's pretty um, amazing of that family. Well, how did you yeah. know the family? You know, we moved um, my seventh grade year, we moved seven times with my mother who again was a big time alcoholic and we used to sleep down in the bushes at the school because I knew my mom had the ability to take our lives. Um, somebody thought it was a good idea to give her a gun. I don't ask me. And so we would sleep down in the parking lot um, and, and the bushes alongside of the building. We got caught one day. And so we were called into um, the principal's office and it was the actual principal who sat us down and said, you know, your parents are going to have to give you up to the state, but we would like to take you in and see if we could find family members for you to live with. And so we moved in with them and, um, gosh, I ended up staying with them all the way through until high school, went back with my father for a short stint and then went back and lived with them the rest of the time. So very, very lucky. It was interesting though, for me, because, um, you know, they were a functional family and I had severe anxiety in a functional environment. Like I didn't know how to function in that environment. So I always had a lot of post-traumatic stress. Um, the, it, it felt dysfunctional in that family environment. And so I knew at the age of 12 that that was my only hope to be normal in life, if that makes sense. Like to know what a normal family looked like and to be a good mother someday. And so I knew I had to hang in there, which we did. So, wow. yeah. You know, I was thinking, I mean, were your parents functioning alcoholics? Like, did they still hold jobs and kind of appeared to, I mean, I just always think it's interesting. There's those families out there that, they, you know, things might appear normal from the outside, but no one maybe knew what you were going through or yeah. How did that kind of look? Uh, you know, Lindsay, that's a good, uh, that's a great question because on the outside, everybody thought we had it all together. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, my parents were beautiful people to be honest. And so they were high status members. They sold real estate. were very good at it. Um, very functional for a long time, but behind closed doors was a living hell. Mm. And then there, there was a time where things switched, right? Where they could no longer hide it anymore. And so that's kind of when it came out in the open and my mom got worse and worse. She eventually took off, uh, couldn't function in the lifestyle that she was in. And, uh, we lived with the Lessendorf Slotic is their name. So <laughs> absolute angels. Wow. Wow. That is really oppressive that that family would take so three of you in three of us they had raised two kids already they were both in law school and um she was a secretary at one of the high schools and he was a superintendent he was the principal at the time then turned into the superintendent and was just very kind and uh just getting it's it's honestly where for my full life story it's where i started to learn what compassion was and what that word of unconditional love really meant and so it was a turning point for me that there were decent people in the world, which I didn't know at the time. So I had surrounded myself with predators all around. Oh, I'm so sorry that you went through that. I mean, I can't even imagine, but I think it's incredible. Like, look what you've turned out. I mean, you obviously had a lot of determination and wanted to make a different life for yourself. So that's, yeah, yeah that's amazing. You know, and I think that's a, it's a big thing of what I, I want people to hear is that your life may seem so dark right now at the moment, 
But if you can hang on for the ride, I really believe if you can learn from people's past mistakes, you can do it differently. And so it's just one of those, one of those things that I now consider a, a gift almost. It sounds really warped. It was hard. It was horrible. But I don't know if I would change my life at this point. Like it's made me into who I am today. So yeah, yeah, I think that's really important. I'm listening to a book right now, and I don't have the author's names in front of me, but it's called The Good Life, and it's a um, book kind of following a study that's been going on to like since like the 1940s. They followed like hundreds of people, um, and then even their children after they passed, and it's all about trying to find out what makes people happy. Like, what is the formula that makes people happy? And what's crazy is a couple of the themes are one, what you said that when people go through really hard things. They actually don't want to change it because it made them who they want to be. And they learned their best lessons or their way, ways to be better compassionate people through those hard times. But also actually the main whole thing about the book and how to have a good life is your connections and your relationships. So it just makes me think these people that took you in um, probably started that for you. Like someone that loved you, that cared for you enough to want to take care of you. And then you had this example um, of a family that, you know, seemed to be functioning in a way that you, you know, like you said, that maybe could be an example to you later in life of what a parent was or what, you know, a family looked like and how important that must have been. Yeah. For your whole story from then on out. It's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, they are what turned me fully around. And I remember when my father was demanding that I come back and I live with him. I remember knowing logically in my head, it feels safer there, even though it was not a great environment. I knew I had to stay with this family somehow. Well, he was, you know, mandated. You you have to come back with me. And there was no legal documents that were shifted between the other family. And so I went back and I lived with him. And I, I don't remember how many months, but a couple months into it, Slavics were trying to reach out to me and reach out to me. And I was avoiding them because I was a people pleaser, didn't want to rock the boat, didn't know what would happen. And um, one point they finally just said, we're coming to pick you up. And I sat down with them at dinner and I can't hide my emotions. You, you probably feel that I even have anxiety talking about it even at this point. And, um, sorry. That's fine. And I remember sitting down with them at dinner and they asked me the question, how are you doing? And I crumbled. I, I said, I'm not doing well. And they said, you're coming home with me. And I was like, well, you're going to have to get to my dad. He's not going to let you. And they said, we'll handle your dad you're coming home with us. And so, so grateful that they fought for me when I was unable to fight for myself. Yeah. And I was the only, you know, child out of all of us that went to college. Um, They were both very well educated and it was just kind of a non-negotiable in their home. And I would have never gone to college. I probably would have been into drugs and alcohol and, you know, I I probably suicide. I was very suicidal when I was young. Um, But they fought for me and they kept fighting for me. But it was interesting because I want to say it wasn't until college where I truly understood that they genuinely loved me. Like they were never going anywhere. And it was, it was then traveling all the way down to my college to say, Hey, we're going to take you to lunch and slip me a little bit of money so I could survive. You know, it was just those little pieces that I was like, gosh, they're never going away. They didn't do their job for a time being and wash their hands and walk away. They stayed with me and they still live life with me today. They're grandma, you know, grandpa to my kids. And Mm. that's a beautiful thing. So, yeah. Yeah, That's amazing. I was going to ask that if you're still close with them and everything, but that's, that's awesome. 
that just gives me so much. I just love that there's people out there like that, you know, and love that that was there for you as a, you know, a young girl, like that resource. That's yeah. amazing. And made a difference for generations. I mean, now that yeah. you have your children, that you were yeah. able to be in the space you're in. You hope, right? Like mm-hmm. you hope you break. We weren't going to have kids when I married my husband because we both had grown up pretty rough and we were like, no, we're going to break this cycle by not having children. Yeah. <laughs> And then we had our first child and such a beautiful thing and, and just really changed our world forever. And, and we, we realized, yeah, we broke the cycle. We didn't, we didn't have to be our parents, but it's hard to believe that that can be done. So I think it's such a complicated thing because they are your parents. And so, you know, I'm wondering or curious, like at that time you went back with your dad, was it kind of like a loyalty, loyalty thing? Like, okay, well he is my dad. So I maybe I should go with him. You know, was there a hope that he had changed and that you could have that relationship? Yeah, I think for me, my dad, I remember my mom being more in my life, but my dad was kind of aloof and distant is kind of how I remember it. He's like, wait, no, I wasn't. But he's, he's since, by the way, given up alcohol, he's clean, he's sober, he's, you know, doing well. Um, but I think I always longed for my father's approval. And so you go back just hoping that one day you hear the word, I'm proud of you. And you're, you're an amazing daughter and you're beautiful and you're kind and you're, you know, whatever it is that you need internally. And, um, I unfortunately didn't get that obviously, but I, I got a lot of that from, um, Lesson Doris Slotic, but, um, my father later on did get clean. He was willing to pay for therapy and he would, you know, he says, if you have questions in the middle of the night, you know, daytime, whenever I'll answer the phone. And he did. And he was honest about a lot of the, um, I guess just the, I'll call them sins, a lot of the crap that he did in our lives and he owned it. And so I think for me, it was much easier for me to have a sense of forgiveness for him because he owned it. And I knew that the, by not forgiving was keeping me hostage more than it was him. And so I had to move through all those, you know, different pieces, I guess, in my life to, to get to that point of forgiveness. But, but I got there, which is great. So. Yeah. And that's impressive that he was able to get clean and kind of do the mending with you. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. And that is really cool actually to think, like you said, I mean, I've heard, I've been hearing more and more about how repairs are so important. Like, you know, without repairs, things can't always be mended or often can't, especially with something so severe as that, you know? So I think that's amazing that even though I'm sure it was so hard for him to be vulnerable and be like, I made a lot of mistakes, you know, but anyway, that's a good he did the right thing, and yeah. that, most of us don't have that opportunity, right? Most people don't stand up and say, "I I did all this, and I'm going to take responsibility for it." And so, and I had a lot more grace, I think, for my mom, who I never had the opportunity to work through forgiveness with her. But I, I also knew her history, and she was sexually exploited since she was a baby. Like the woman went through a living hell and back, and so um, she would disassociate in order to survive. And uh, alcohol was also a way to numb her pain. And um, I just never really held a lot, I guess, against her for just understanding her past. And then, you know, she died when I was, my gosh, I had moved here to Salt Lake. It's the first year I'd moved here. Um, and she passed, she was 47 years old. And um, it rocked my world in the sense that that chapter's finally done. I wasn't super close to her at the time, but it was almost a relief because I knew she was out of pain, right? She was finally at rest and didn't have to deal with the craziness of 
you know, this earth any longer. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that you can give her grace too, just shows a lot of your character and, and see that there was more at play with her background, you know, and, and what happened. So anyway, wow. Well, that's quite a background. <laughs> and yeah, yeah th thank you for sharing <laughs> yeah. with us. You know, that's, that's, yeah, that's a a hard thing. no problem. We'll have nightmares for a week inside. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking. My I, hope, I hope it wasn't too triggering. I know, because that's hard. <sighs> so, where did you you met your husband in college? Met my husband in college. I was a sophomore. He was graduating, and um, good, good guy. Um, you know, again, I, I anticipated him, something to be wrong with him, something to happen. You know, it was it was hard to find good men in this world, and. Um, he just kept fighting for me. He just kept standing out. And five and a half years later, I remember him saying to me, you know, he was ready to get married after a year. And I was like, I'm never getting married. Why would I do that after what we went through? And so after about five years, he said, you know, I, I, I feel like I need to let you go uh, for, for your sake because there's, you know, you're unable to commit. And I mean, at that point, I remember Doris Slotik, uh, the people that I live with, she goes, you know, let me just buy you a one-way ticket. He was in Texas at the time. He was already in the corporate world, and and I said, oh, okay, but and she goes, I'll buy you a ticket if you need to come back, and and I went there within 24 hours. I knew I was going to make the biggest mistake of my life by letting him go, and so here we are, almost 30 years later, we're still married. So oh, there you that's go. Awesome. Oh, wow. that's awesome. See another yeah, a thing that that family did for you, just that little push, like yeah. here, why don't you just go and make sure that this is <laughs> you're not letting it go, a good thing go. So yeah. yeah. That's really so, cool. and then, yeah, at what point did you guys end up in Salt Lake and what brought you here? Yeah, we traveled um, with his job um, all over the place. I mean, Kansas City, um, we were in Iowa, but we were all over. We were probably in six different cities and then his job wanted to transfer him here to Salt Lake City. I was in the financial industry, banking and finance, and uh, my company said, gosh, they need someone there too. So we moved to Salt Lake, I want to say like 90 five maybe no it was probably yeah it was probably 95 and um I that was the one place I, I followed him everywhere and I said I'm not going to Salt Lake City I hope I don't offend any of your listeners but I was like there's no way I hear there's polygamy there I'm not going to Salt Lake City <laughs> so, and my husband was like honey it's just for it's only six months to about two and a half years and I was like okay to support you I can do six months to two and a half years and we got here and started having children and um now you can't get us out of Salt Lake City. So. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. You said children because you said you had one child. So how many kids do you have? I have three girls. Um, my youngest is 18. And my oldest is, gosh, 24 now. She's in PA school in Georgia. And my two girls are living at home and in college right now. Uh, so, okay. yeah, we're, we're really kind of out of the busy season. But it is so nice that my kids still want to be at home. They moved. One of them moved out. And she's like, can we just like live at home and go to college. And I'm like, yeah, I'll cook you meals. I'll do your laundry. I just want you around. So you can hang out with us. So it's pretty fun. Oh, that's that's fun. awesome. Yeah. That's great. Um, all right. Well, okay. So maybe you can kind of lead us up to what was going on. Well, yeah. First of all, what did you think of Salt Lake? You had all this kind of dread, but what were your, what was your impression once you got here? You know, I I struggled in to be very honest in Salt Lake City for a good four years. I was I would call it I was probably in a uh, pretty good depression. Um, I wasn't a believer of anything, and I, I I felt enormous pressure with neighbors and 
you know, coworkers and everybody just wanted to kind of save me, so to speak. And I didn't want saving. I, I, had, I wanted nothing to do with it. I grew up in a very hypocritical home of, you know, where people went to church, but then behind closed doors, you know, there was everything you could imagine happening, right? And so um, pretty, pretty depressed. Um, I loved the outdoors, though. Um, and then we, we found this tiny church at the time. It was 30 people, South Mountain Community. That's now huge. And I finally felt like I found my people that really accepted me as I was. And you have to remember, I mean, you heard my history. And with that history comes legitimately every mistake you could possibly make in life because you don't know who you are and you're bouncing off all these walls. And um, I just remember um, going out to breakfast, the, the pastor's wife goes, I don't get to know you. And I thought, oh, hell, she's going to kick me out of church. And if I walk in, lightning's going to strike me. And so I remember sitting down and just starting to share with her about my history and the mistakes I had made. And she loved me more. Like, she was like, tell me more. And, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine what you've been through. And accepted me as I was. And so kind of found my tribe, I guess. Um, and from there, my tribe has grown. And love the outdoors and so um and even the, the LDS community is as you know has grown on me I have, I have friends in in that realm as well and so I, I greatly appreciate people from all walks of life and what I love about my children being raised here is they learn to love people from all walks of life and that's really how it should be so yeah so there you go well that's cool yeah that's awesome. I actually have heard really good things about that, the South Mountain Community Church. That's what it's called, right? There's a yeah. bit, do you know, Chantel, it's, um, there's Yeah, one, I went there actually a couple yeah, times. Yeah, down yeah, on 3600 West. Yeah. In Riverton. We live in Riverton. So they have a big, yeah, but, nice building yeah. out here. Yeah. 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 I've been to the one in Draper. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one I go to. I live right by it. And oh, yeah. Very nice. much enjoy it. But you know, I had to, I had to peel back all those layers of, is there a God? And um, if there is a God, what's reality versus what's not? And, you know, everyone has a viewpoint on it. And so I had to go through a lot of intense studying before I could land on. And, and again, I hope I don't offend your, you know, your listeners, but religion kills more people than anything else on this earth. It just is a fact. And I feel like most religions are man-made and put expectations on people that shouldn't be there. And so I wouldn't call myself religious, but I absolutely believe in, you know, Jesus who, you know, paid the ultimate sacrifice to die for me for past, present, future sins. And so it's a little bit different belief, I know, but I, again, I found my tribe that seemed to accept me as I am and all my weird beliefs. Yeah, I love that. And just that message that like, there's so many different beliefs out there, but I do think if everyone can kind of come back to that perspective that you're sharing, that like, that's how we find peace, you know, with all these different viewpoints and beliefs and everything. I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I really like that. And anyway, I feel I'm, like we're so battling each yeah. other instead of being common ground and just learning to respect differences and just learning to meet people where they're at. And like, I remember when, again, this is way back when, when I first landed here, I would have a friend that I thought was a true friend. And then I would realize after a year when they couldn't get me to go to their church suddenly they weren't talking anymore I couldn't I, I was so dumb when I first moved here I was like what is happening what's wrong with me and and then it, and then it dawned on me I was like oh I was 
was kind of that project in that I was no longer their project because they knew I wasn't going to shift that direction. And so, yeah, that made it made it very difficult for a while. But yeah, that would be hard. It's, it's, a lot, it's a lot different today. It's a lot different today. So, yeah, and I love just the message you're saying. Like, I think we're all so we're such individuals. We all have our own experiences you know, our past, our beliefs, our ideas, like even our values and our goals. And so we're all going to land in different places, how we see the world or what our belief system is. And so the respect and the acceptance is so important that, especially in a, you know, in a community, in a state like Utah, when there's a predominant religion, um, I think it's important to teach our kids um, to accept all belief systems and all walks of life and how important that is to have them see those things. And that's one of the reasons why we had gone to the South Mountain Church. We also went to a Catholic church. And, you know, we went to these different churches. Because I think my kids had literally thought that, that Mormonism was it. The LDS church was like, I don't know. They didn't know anything different. And so I was like, wait, hold on a second. Because <laughs> we had come from California where we had tons of friends from all different religions. And then we moved here. And I was like, oh, wait, i got to make sure they realize. And so I think it was a really good experience for them to see people feeling um, some community and acceptance at different, different places. And it didn't have to be in a certain, you know, religious setting or a church setting or a certain belief system. And it's important to find what works best for you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you did that though, Chantel. Not many people are that courageous because they're so scared of losing their kids. And, you know, as, as we raised our kids, we're like, you have to figure this out on your own. You cannot write on my coattails. Like mm-hmm. go do your research, go visit all the different churches and, you know, I mean, they've all of them have been to the LDS church. All of them have been to the Catholic church. You know, they've been all over Utah, and they get mm-hmm. to make the decision that, you know, mom and dad's going to love them no matter what. No yeah, matter what. which is super important so, as well. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. To give that. them that freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because things are going to land differently with different people. And I don't know. I just knowing that they have your support wherever they land, I think, is so huge because that's not something that we always see, you know. So that's really cool. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Um, you mentioned in your outline that you actually were diagnosed with cancer. Do you, uh, you want to get to that yeah. that point in your story? Yeah, yeah you know, that was that was one of those shifts, right? You, I love yeah. your podcast, Beautiful Shifts. And um, be, growing up the way I grew up, I and still today, it still haunts me sometimes. Of you know, you still have panic attacks, you still have you know PTSD in certain cir- circumstances, and you never know when it's going to hit. Well. When I was 30, 30 years old, I had had my first daughter, and shortly after, my husband and I's marriage was really kind of faltering a little bit, and um, I found my safety net at South Mountain. I was so grateful to have a safety net before this hit, and then we were out eating one night, and, and I remember, oh my God, I got food poisoning. I was super sick, and I called everybody because we had all shared the food, and no one else had gotten sick, and I thought that was strange, and so... Um, those episodes were getting closer and closer until I got to a point where I, I was unable to eat for about 30 days. Um, three days prior going into the hospital for my last time, I was unable to get liquids down anymore. And um, I had drank or ate something and I could feel another episode coming on. And I mean, it's worse than childbirth. I will just tell all ladies that so they can understand the pain. And I went into the ER and I just said, I need you to give me morphine like right now. And the doctor looked me square in the eye and he said, I'm not going to give you your next fix, which hit me so deeply because I came from addicts. I can't, my whole family were addicts. And that was one thing that I was not, was an antlock food addict maybe, (laughs) but I wasn't doing alcohol or drugs or any of that stuff. And so 
long story short, um, the, the, I just said to him, I was crying. I mean, I could barely walk. I was so thin. And I just said, you know, I'm not leaving this hospital until somebody figures it out because I know I'm going to die. And, and so they called my GI specialist. Thank goodness he went to the same school and our kids hung out and he said, she's rational, put her in the hospital for the night and I'll be there tomorrow to assess her. And, uh, he walks in and he said, listen, this happens when you eat, I need you to eat so I can justify believing you up. And so he brings in this tray of food and you guys will crack up because all I could see was cheesecake. <laughs> I didn't eat in 30 days. I was like, cheesecake. I don't even, even like cheesecake normally, but I down that cheesecake. I had my morphine in and I remember kind of going out and waking back up and I had all my friends around me who were praying around me and I was like, what's going on? And they said, they're willing you into surgery. You have a blockage. And so wheeled me in and, um, found, uh, lymphoma, um, in my intestinal tract, did a scan, found it at stage four, neck, mm-hmm. chest, groin. Um, they said the lifespan was about eight to 10 years. They figured I had had it for about three to four years already. Um, but they said, you'll know your lifespan when your cancer comes back. So I battled it for a year. Um, and if you guys want to ever experience the most beautiful thing ever, I'm a caretaker. I take care of everyone else. No one takes care of me. And I had an account set up. I had house cleaners. I had meals every night. I had, um, I had a nanny paid for, for my, my kids were one, three and six years old when it hit. And it was the most beautiful depiction of servanthood that I could have ever asked for. And so, um, Sadly, the cancer, I got rid of it. It came back the following year. So I knew it was going to come back in half the time each time. And I knew I was going to die. And so that is when I threw one of those Hail Mary prayers, if you guys have ever said them, when I was in the hospital. I was like, I knew I was on my deathbed. I mean, I couldn't walk. I couldn't. I was so sick. And I remember just saying, you know, God, if you're real, if you give me a day, a week, a month, a year, I will serve you boldly in whatever capacity you see fit for my life. And the fear of people pleasing and everyone wanting to like me, um, it just seemed to just shred off. I mean, the boulder on my back was gone and I, he got me off that, that bed two weeks later. And, um, I remember being asked at South mountain to be on women's ministry. And I thought I was on women's ministry. I thought, well, maybe this is what he wants. I don't hear voices, right? I don't, I don't have overwhelming feelings. This is what I should do. And I remember being on women's ministry going, this is just not for me. Like, I really want to be with the most broken humans, like the stuff that I went through. And that sounds sad, but, but I knew what it was like and I knew I wouldn't be, you know, judgmental. And so I left that. And the next call I got was from a friend who asked me if I would be willing to open up my home to be a safe house for people leaving polygamy. And you have to understand, we had just purchased that house to have a live-in when I passed and to help with my children. And so we had this, you know, basement that we didn't use. I had full kitchen downstairs. And um, I remember looking at my husband and going, gosh, I'm getting well. Do we dare open this up for a family in need? And what if, you know, my cancer comes back full-fledged? And we were like, no, we're not going to live in fear. We're going to live boldly and we're going to, we're going to say yes to this. And so that's how we ended up with this family of six in my home. Um, was through that whole crazy process of cancer. And my cancer has not been back since I started this agency, which is, 
crazy. I mean, I should have died probably 10, actually almost 15 years ago. And I'm healthy. I'm doing well. And I get to continue to serve these amazing people um, from this culture. And so that's kind of how holding out, how I would have never had the courage to do it. I would have never in a million years had I not gone through that and realized I'm going to meet my maker. So I might as well, you know, do something here on earth. Not that I needed to, to earn his love, because that's not the way I think, but that I just wanted to leave even a small mark, one life, you know, that you help out on this earth. And, and yeah, the rest is history. And now wow. not help is here. And that was 15 years ago. Wow. So. That's incredible. Gosh, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. That's so amazing. Um, Gosh. Okay. Well, I'd love where to, to, yeah, where to begin. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to go back to, okay. So you had the family come and live with you. Um, yeah, maybe just take us through in a little more detail, like what that was like, and then kind of what led you to then, st- you know, cause I know there must've been a lot of steps along the way. Yeah. And I so, wanted to, sorry, really yeah. quickly go back to, I know in your, um, outline, you kind of talked about some of the things you learned, um, during the cancer time, because I'm sure knowing that you were going to die or, you know, believing that, because that's what they told you, um, some of the, you know, challenging parts or vulnerable parts of just the cancer itself. Oh, yeah. You're going to have to give me a hint on what I wrote down since Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, you talked about, yeah, you did send this to us a while ago, but um, that you, um, the challenging part was being away from your children. So I, I assume that means oh. you're in the hospital a lot or... You know, did yeah. you go through chemo and all of that or what was your... Yeah, so that, I think that was the hardest part was, I mean, when you have these tiny little children and as a stay-at-home mom, right, they depend on me for everything and then you're gone. It, my, my treatments were monthly and they were all day. I was pretty sick afterwards and so I would go home and slide into bed and I remember opening, I'd always open up my blinds and I'd watch, oh, I'm going to cry, the nanny play with my children. And this went on for a solid year. I was really sick and my kids would come into the room, but they were scared to get near me because I didn't look well. I didn't look like mom anymore. And so it was, for me, it was learning to cherish every moment that you had with your children. I knew when I was going through this, I mean, I would go outside and I would see the same flower that I saw every year but in a totally new way. Like all of a sudden the colors were so vibrant and the smells were so much richer. And it was like, everything was, it's like I was almost outside of my body. I don't even know how to explain it, but it was again, one of the biggest gifts I think I could have ever been given because I appreciated the tiniest little things in my life now. I mean, somebody said hi to me on the street and I thought that was the coolest thing. Somebody saying hi and being kind on the street. So it was hard being away from my kids, but it also shifted me in a way of, you know, when I was able to be mom, I was so much more present and um, I loved so much deeper. And remember, I had a lot of wounds from my history and, and it was sometimes hard for me to get super close in intimate ways with people. And, and that was all out the door. Oh my gosh. I was like, I couldn't get enough of my husband, couldn't get enough of my kids and couldn't get enough of my friends. And so, yeah, it was just a totally different planet I felt like I was on. And I was just so free. I don't know how to explain it. I was so free going, I'm not going to be here much longer. I'm going to enjoy every moment and everything, every taste of food. Um, 
just in a new new way and it was a it was a beautiful life i have to say it was a beautiful life some days i'm like okay that cancer needs to come back so i can appreciate life a little bit more (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is kind of crazy it's like none of us are promised a certain amount of time here on earth you know and so you would think that we would live our days like we were it was our last but we don't for whatever reason we take for granted the fact that we're healthier things are just moving along and until something happens it's when you yeah reflect and think wow like yeah the flowers are more beautiful the sunsets are more beautiful my children my husband I you know my love for them has deepened it's just amazing those things that can and the things that don't don't you know like irritate you with your husband suddenly those are out the door it's like what what irritation what he didn't put you know toilet seat cover down okay yeah Yeah, those don't matter anymore it yeah. doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I think wow. that's beautiful. And it sounded like you had, um, when you mentioned before, you had all these people come around um, cleaning your house and bringing you meals and that you had all these friends and people rallying around you to help you. Um, sometimes it's hard to, to accept help. And so um, it's good to have that experience too because then you're also more willing to help others and or accept it when it's time. Yeah. It was super humbling. And, you know, if you logically think about it, if you're supposed to be serving others and others don't allow you to serve, I mean, I think is that I remember one girl saying to me, thank you for allowing me to serve the Lord through you. And I was like, what? I was like, Oh, whoa, that was pretty profound. Do you know what I mean? I was like, Oh, she's serving him, but I'm just the conduit that, that, that gets this wonderful gift. And, and I thought that was yeah, pretty amazing. So it was sweet. It was very sweet. It was hard for me to take, but I did it. And it is hard. We have to remember, yeah, how good it feels to be able to serve. And so we have to accept the service from others. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then holding out helps. So let's, let's shift there, I guess, because, you know, your question, Lindsay, was this family. And I remember they were supposed to come on a Tuesday night. And all of a sudden I got a call on the Saturday before we weren't ready. And they said the husband had come home from work early. He, he traveled, I guess, for work and had come home early. And she barricaded herself in an upstairs bedroom. And um, the people, I guess, I, I didn't know who they were at the time, but drove by her house to see, um, to kind of scan it out for Saturday. And when they went by the house, they saw the wife in the upstairs bedroom barricaded and just waving her arms for help and the, she had changed the locks I guess on the home and the husband was at the door trying to get the, the locks off um, the door actually dismantled and so the guy who happened to be driving by I guess was a really big guy he called the police thank goodness and he confronted the husband and just said you know um, you know what's going on and he said this is my house you know my wife's changed the changed the keys and or the locks on the door and the police came up behind and the police said all I could do because he owned the home. Very important thing because the men own everything in these places. And so he said, I can hold him at bay while you grab a few things and, and leave. And so she landed on my doorstep with four children um, late, probably at 10 o'clock at night is what my guess would be. And I remember she wraps her arms around me and she says, my kids think we're on the mid and I'm thinking in my head, okay, what does that mean to you all? Like, I, I mean, I'm clueless, you know, dealing with this population. And, and I was like, okay. And I thought, God, we're not rich. What does that mean? Like, I'm supposed to take them to, 
you know, lagoon. And my, you know, I didn't know what that meant. And um, I welcomed the kids in. We quickly whipped up beds in our basement. And then about an hour later, her mother, the children's grandma, landed on our doorstep. And so it was six of them. And I remember her and her mom saying, we will be the most educated people you will ever meet. And I didn't know what she really meant by that, but I did know that she was fairly educated. Um, and she's actually going to be our MC at our fundraiser this year. Oh, cool. we were gonna oh, have wow. That. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, she's going to share finally. She's a pretty prominent member here in Utah now. And so she's very careful where she shares things, but it sounds like she's going to be there that night and be our MC now. But, um, and then she starts explaining how there are these people living in these closed, isolated communities. And the only word I can use that they live under is a dictatorship, right? Where one man is in control, everybody follows exactly what the leader says. And she said, you know, Tanya, people don't own anything. The women, you know, don't own, usually the church owns it. If anybody owns anything, it would be the males in there. She talked about education being a low priority. She talked about um, they don't have normal parenting skills. Um, talked about abuse. And as I got to know her story, I was, I was absolutely mortified. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do is open up my home. And at the end, they sat my husband and I down and they said, listen, they said, we believe 50% of our community would leave if there was a safe place for them to go. And there was nowhere here in Utah for us to go. And I remember that sticking with me again. Remember, I'm a stay-at-home mom, right? So I've got one more kid who's getting ready to go into school, and then I was going to go to work part-time. And I remember looking at my husband and just saying, you know, babe, you'd be really great at this. You know, you're a corporate guy. You know, you're, you'd be great at this. And he's like, with what hours, Tanya? I don't have any time. Like, he worked long hours. And so we um, we decided we were going to start it really small, small, small. And so we have people in our home for three years straight, Um 1.16 people, 12 children, like our neighbors must have oh, wow. thought we were brand new to this neighborhood. Like, remember, we moved there because of my cancer. And and Larry, my husband Larry would come out and he'd be, you know, dressed in whatever. And then he'd have this, you know, lady with clip hair and long dress come out and all of her little kids, you know, <laughs> running outside. And, and then he'd have this other wife, me you know, short sleeves and shorts and her children come out. And it was just a really interesting time. But... Um, uh, we, we started holding out help and it has kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, I think the first year we had 30 people that needed services and it was just us. And then we'd knock on our neighbor's doors who can help us. We could call our friends, family, whoever would step in to help. And then next year it was 60, next year it was 120. And it's just kind of evolved from there. Um, really what, what we, what we do and how many people we serve. So, wow. So what year was that when you had the first family? Um, it was still probably 2007 is what, and we started in 2008, but we took them in our home for quite a while. And then we got to the point where we realized that our family really needed sanctuary, you know, a place away from what we were doing day in and day out. And so we stopped taking them in our home and then we ended up doing using host families all throughout the valley. So it'd be families like yours and mine, right? That say, gosh, I have a basement apartment or I'll take this child in who was kicked out and dumped on the street, you know? And so we have, we have about 20 host families at any one time 
um, is usually the number. And now we have properties where we house people. So. Oh, good. Oh, good. Wow. So, um, I was just thinking like, did, did the growth kind of happen as more people learned about it and started volunteering their homes too? Um, like, yeah, just how, how did it kind of evolve over the next few years? It definitely was word of mouth. Um, I know we did have a a wealthy donor that paid for billboards Mm -hmm. to be outside of the, so there's multiple groups. I don't know how in depth you want me to go. But there's multiple groups in this valley. There's probably up to 60,000 um, polygamists. I, they, polygamous is a slang word. They prefer to be called fundamentalist Mormons, but that also can offend the LDS community. So it's just this weird dynamic. So I'm not trying to uh, you know, um, upset anybody, but there's about 60,000 fundamentalists, I'll just say generally, and that they live in the western United States, Canada, and Mexico with the majority right here in Orange, Utah. Um, then there's lots of offshoots. So in the 1800s, when polygamy began through Joseph Smith, right, um, there was just that one group. And then in 18, I think 90 was the manifesto where the LDS church said we promised not to practice future polar marriages. They still did secretively for probably two, two, three more years. And then there was a divide. But then what happened is like a family would say, we don't like the way, you know, um, so-and-so is leading the community, so there's lots of different offshoots. So the three main ones here is the all-red group that's in Santa Quinn up through Bluffdale. Um, they're also in Pinesdale, Montana. Then you have the Kingston Polygamous Group, also known as the Davis County Co-op or the Order. They're down in Farmington, kind of Bountiful, North Salt Lake, all the way up through Draper. And then you have the FLDS that most people are aware of, right? Warren Jeffs, who's in prison for life plus, what, 20 years for um, doing underage marriages and, and molesting a little girl that was age 12, that was his wife. Um, mm-hmm. And they were in Colorado City, Arizona, Hilldale, Utah. Um, now they're predominantly in Cedar City, uh, Colorado, and North Dakota, and then kind of spread all out through um, the United States now. So those are kind of the three main ones that we deal with, but we'll take anybody from, you know, the background of uh, polygamy. So... Uh, we're, we're busy. It, it, it took off because the billboards now it's legitimately word of mouth. Um, even one of the leaders, he likes to call himself a prophet, but one of the leaders used to send the young kids like, this is how bad we think you are. We're going to dump you on holding out help store stuff and they're the devil. I mean, oh, it's wow. that oh. mental part of it. Wow. But they, they learn quickly. We're not the devil. And, um, yeah. They're to help. Yeah. 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 We're genuinely here to help. So So how do the people within the communities learn about holding out help? Like, is it through word of mouth within their communities as well? And then how are they able to leave? (laughs) You know? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will say, um, it is word of mouth for sure. Most people do know. I mean, a lot of the leaders will teach on how evil we are, um, to their congregation when they don't they don't realize that a lot of them are writing the number down, right? Like what was that name again? And they're, they're writing it down. Um, your other question though, Lindsay was, Oh, how do they get out? Um, a lot of them can get up and just drive out. They really can. Um, there are times where, you know, we've dropped track phones in bushes outside of someone's home where they can communicate, you know, when someone's away from the house, because most phones are tracked and traced and listened to, or they can see that, oh gosh, she made a phone call to holding out help. And so they anticipate what's coming. Um, and so we have had to do some rescues of, a, you know, adults as well. 
Um, and then we get some where, you know, the kids are just kicked out or they're sent into what's referred to as repentance homes. Um, and those repentance homes is where they escape from and land on our doorstep for help. And mm-hmm. so we get, kind of get them all different ways. We haven't done a lot of rescues lately. We used to do them all the time, but we really, we really don't. I feel like people have more freedom than you think that the biggest part for someone who's trying to leave is the mental bondage that they can't get through because they believe if they step foot out of their community, they are condemned to hell. And that's the biggest struggle that they have. And they land with nothing. They've got the clothes on their backs. They don't have money. They don't have assets. You know, they have nothing. And so we get to start from scratch and they don't know how our world works. And so to put it this way, when you come from that, when you come from these closed, tight-knit communities, most decisions are made for them. And then they get dumped or decide to leave and land in our competitive environment where they have to learn to make the most basic decisions. And that doesn't come easy. They're paralyzed with fear because they, we teach our kids from a young age, right? You touch the stove, you get burned, right? They don't learn a lot of this basic stuff that we've taught our kids since they were, you know, itty-bitty. And so it is a, it's a lot for them to go through. It's paralyzing. It's like being dumped into another country. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to it. Like you said, like they leave mentally feeling like they're condemned to hell and that, you know, they're not educated like we are. They probably, you know, maybe don't know how to drive. If women don't own anything, if they don't have money, like where do you even begin? And even if they've been really insulated from the outside world, what, how do you get a job? And every, cause everything in their community is insular, right? Like all the jobs are within yeah. the community. They don't really go outside of it. Wow. And if they do, they go in pods. Like if there's one community, I'm being careful not to say who these communities are, yeah. but one of the communities where they will allow them like to go to Salt Lake Community College, but they send them in pods mm-hmm. and you're not allowed to talk to outsiders. You're not allowed to go to the bathroom by yourself. You know, everything socially, religiously, you know, everything's done within their communities. And so it's, it's sad. I was trying to look up our latest statistics this year, but I mean, our abuse rate's usually around 90%. And our last year, our sexual exploitation rate was 61%, and labor trafficking was like 47%, like super Mm. high, super high. And then Utah decided to decriminalize polygamy, which the topic for me is not polygamy. The topic for me is abuse, stop the abuse. But because the abuse wasn't being dealt with, I sat on Capitol Hill and I said, you guys need to be aware that if you decriminalize it at this point, you haven't dealt with the crimes within polygamy, you are going to embolden these perpetrators. Well, it's exactly what has happened. We had a 25% growth the year after. We had an additional 14% growth last year. I mean, and the types of abuse, the only best way to say is complex trauma, right? Multiple types of abuse. And so now it's harder for these people to heal. Mm. It's, it's sad. Yeah, I wondered about that because I remember a lot of talk about the decriminalization and I I don't, I don't, didn't understand it. Like, well, yeah, from your perspective, is that helpful or hurtful? But it sounds like maybe it's not so helpful. I, yeah, it's probably really complicated, but yeah. It is what it is. So, so when someone, say someone comes, um, you get a new person or new family, a wife and some kids, what are kind of the first things you do to help them? What are the first steps usually? 
Yep. So we usually align them with a case manager who does an intake. And through that intake, they will develop an individualized plan for that person. So do they need housing? Usually it's a yes, right? Do they need education? Um, we have two counselors on staff. We need another full-time one. And then we have two neurofeedback clinicians also on staff. Um, do they need tutoring? And we have tutors that help as well. Most of those are volunteers within our community. Um, and then we also partner with agencies like People Helping People that do job skills. That's their expertise. And so um, really there's nothing we do not deal with. Um, if the client needs basic life skills, if they need to learn how to clean a house, if they need to have parenting classes, we will pound the pavement and find whatever it is that they need in order to acclimate in our world. But I think that the number one thing they receive from holding out help is that piece of acceptance and unconditional love, something they've never felt before, right? Everything's been done with strings attached. And so I think those are the two main gifts we can give, especially friendship, right? We're not going to judge you. We don't care what your belief system is. This is your journey, not ours. It's for you to figure out. We're neutral at holding out help. They have to tell us what they need, and then we'll step up alongside of them. So Yeah, I love that because I'm sure it's so difficult to separate some of the abuse and pain with their belief system, and it probably takes time to figure out where they want to land or where they end up being. So just giving those first few things to help them is super important. Yeah, I think it's important that we – we give them the basic necessities, right? Food, clothing, shelter, and safety. Those are the first things we focus on. Then when they realize that their basic needs are being taken care of, it's almost like that trauma, the, um, uh, I can't think of the right word, but it, it's almost like their central nervous system just settles down, right? And then at that point, then we start focusing on their future. They may be months before they can focus on their future. And so we will allow them the time necessary for them to just relax and settle down before we move to the next steps. So yeah, it's a lot. Cool. It usually takes someone about 10 years before they feel normal in our world. That's oh, how wow. separated. Wow. I can imagine. Um, I was curious, what do you recognize like the reason that they usually leave? Is it abuse? I mean, you mentioned abuse is really high. Is it them learning somehow that like this isn't normal in the outside world? I mean, I always, I've told Chantel this before. I hate, I shouldn't say hate. It's hard for me when I run into like polygamous women with their kids at Costco. Like, I just want to be like, there's life outside, but I don't want to be presumptuous. I mean, I've never have done it, but I'm so tempted to be like, do you want me to help you? I'll help you find someone that can help you, you know? So anyway, I just wonder, is it someone that reaches out to them? Do they, I mean, do they have access to the internet? Is it that they aren't happy? You know what I'm saying? Like, anyway, probably a little bit of everything, but. It's a little bit of everything. Um, yes, they do have access to the internet. Like FLDS are like no internet, no TV, no anything, but they're still creative, right? They can they, get, they, yeah. they can But I would say the number one reason why people leave, and it goes along with the same thing that I talk about religion, it's when those burdens get too great to bear any longer. Mm. So it's almost like you have a gold post, right? You make it to that gold post, then you get to heaven. And then that gold post moves and it moves and it moves. And then you're seeing your children being abused or uneducated, or they might be taken from your family and shifted to another family. It's usually when things are too much for them to mentally handle and they succumb that they're going to hell. That's when they land on our doorstep. That's when they land. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if they study like, because I'm bad. Media is bad. Um, but the people that have left their communities are considered apostates and they are the worst of the worst of the worst. 
And so a lot of times they do not associate with anybody who has left their community. I'm, I'm a little bit better than that. That's in their heads. I'm a little bit better than those apostates. And so, um, but they're very um, untrustworthy. They're very leery of us when they walk through their doors. They're terrified. Oh, yeah. Well, and I'm sure they've gotten so much gaslighting from, you know, their leaders and whoever else, because they probably, I don't know, like they might feel inside like something's off here. But then if they ask around, I'm sure everyone's like, oh, it's your problem, not what this is. This is the perfect community. This is God's church or whatever, you know, whatever things that they're telling them to then take themselves back into that. Oh, yeah. Why am I questioning the system? And and I'm sure the, the confusing part about this is they probably have felt love and comfort in there. I mean, they have moms and dads, they have brothers and sisters. So how do you untangle those complicated emotions? And, you know, I'm, I'm really weird and I'm probably not normal in the sense of uh, there's a couple of the communities right now where you can get away with one foot in and one foot out. So when they land on my doorstep, I'm like, don't tell anybody left. You can still have the connection to your you know, your family. They don't need to know that you're getting therapy with holding out help. Yeah. They don't need to know that you're getting food here. Like, just don't say anything. Eventually, they're going to have to come to terms with it, but until they can mentally handle it, it's like, why would you, you know, put gas on a fire, right? They're already terrified. Yeah. Keep something more and let that be a natural shift when they choose it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a lot. But usually, I mean, you eventually have to come to terms with, okay, do I believe in this world over here? Or can I shift now safely over to this world? And I believe what this world has to offer. And that's, that's a huge shift. That's huge. Yeah. And they're giving up so much, like they're giving up their community. They're giving up their families. Like that's just, it's not just a mental game of, do I believe this or not? Am I going to give all that up? You know, as that first lady said, she, she explained it to me. She said, as I was driving away, she's very stoic lady. She was, as I was driving away, tears started coming down my cheeks. And she said, I just realized I left everything and everyone I'd ever known. She said, my family, my friends, my social structure, even my religion. She goes, I was walking away from all of it. And I knew I was bringing my children to hell. And, and what do you do with that? Right. And then she lands on, she had never met me, never spoke to me, lands on our doorstep. I, we could have been predators. We could have harmed them. And she said, I realized the risk I was taking landing on a stranger's doorstep of what they could do to my young children. Yeah. I mean, it's just so much. It's so much. Wow. And to see where she's at today. Oh, she's incredible. Absolutely. That's awesome. So do you find that people come for help and then change their minds and go back? You know, we, it's, it's interesting that I was told people would go back seven times before they would eventually break away for good. And we do not see that trend mm-hmm. as much. Do we have people, again, you remember I'm the type is keep one foot in and one foot out. No one needs to know. Right. Um, but there, there have been a few that have gone back. Um, but they eventually turn around and come back out. They just do. And eventually they can't go back anymore. So a lot of the times when you leave, the community says you're you know, essentially damaged goods, right? You've turned to the inapostate and you are no longer allowed back because if they allow them back, then they could contaminate the rest of the flock, which then could re- you know lead the rest of the flock into hell. So it's just, it's it's sad. It's such mental bondage. Like how many years of untangling the mental bondage part do you feel? I mean, you said 10 years altogether for them to acclimate to society. Do you feel like the belief system and the mental part is kind of that full full time or I don't know. I'm sure it varies for everyone. You know, it's similar to me, right? I, you never get over the trauma. 
you learn the skills and the tools that when it starts rearing its ugly head on what to do and it's less and less, right? There's more of a distance between that. But I mean, we had people that we helped out, you know, 15 years ago that may have been out of therapy and that come back and they're like, I surfaced. And, um, and so they will come back again for counseling. So I don't think it ever fully goes away. Can they learn to function in our world? Absolutely. Can they be productive citizens in our society? Absolutely. And these are the people that are now turning around and giving back, right? They're the ones like the girl who's going to be the MC. I have another client two blocks away that is a nurse practitioner. And, you know, she's going to see her clients on Fridays for meds. And, you know, we, we have lots of people that are turning around. And that's when you know you succeeded. They're always like, what can we do in return? We know there's expectations. And I'm like, oh, no, there's not. I said, the only thing I will encourage you to do is the same thing that I did. When someone helps you someday, turn around and give back to someone else. That's the biggest gift you can give. And so they're like, wow, okay, that's it. That's all you require. And I'm like, that's all we require. We just want you to be healthy because you don't know when your siblings are going to come out and need you. You don't know when your parents are going to come out and need you. And so make the best life for yourself so you can give back someday. Yeah, that's so great. <clears throat> do you, um, so as a nonprofit, you don't you don't get any government funding is this all just people donating or how how do you donate to you how do you help your foundation so individual donors actually we have quite a few followers that give maybe 25 50 dollars a month Uh, we started grant writing about five years ago um, and we have all your main ones ethel sorensen you know i mean all the basic ones here and then we have one grant that is a federal government grant and it's through victims of crime Um, And that's where, um, you know, somebody who gets in trouble with the law has to pour restitution into a pot and they filter that out between nonprofit agencies and people who are dealing with victims of crime. So we do get a little bit. Okay. So it's through both. Yeah. And then our annual. That's good. Good. And do you feel like that's growing with time? Like you're getting more donors and able to have a further reach? You know, we're, we're still really small in the big scheme of things. I don't know if I want to get much bigger, to be honest, but I would love to be able to help more people, I guess. And so um, it definitely has steadily grown, um, and I anticipate that to continue. I think what's been cool for our agency is that when we have a need, so we needed a, a house recently for young adult women who are coming out who are completely uneducated, and I just need a place to lay their heads. They can go to college. You know, they can get the job skills they need, and we had donors step up and pay cash for it. Um, we had donors that bought this facility free and clear, so we don't have any debt, um, which is great. And then we have someone else that owns a property in Sandy that leases it to us for nothing. And I think if there was one thing that we truly need right now is duplexes, because now we're having mothers with children come out, and I, it's hard to find host families that will take mothers and children. And so... That's the one area that I would like to grow in. And then I feel like, okay, I'm good. Now, who can I pass this to? So just to go back to, so your cancer never came back. And how long has that been? Like, how long have you been in remission? Uh, It was in 2005 and then came back in 2007. So I haven't seen it. Wow. And the doctor said it can come back at any time. Right, but not going to take me from this earth one day sooner than he's intended. And so I just live in, I don't worry about it. That's so amazing. And then you just kind of put your whole heart and soul into this and kind of found this calling yeah. to help others. I don't know. Like I said, I never heard an audible voice. I never heard, you know, an overwhelming feeling that I need to do something, but it was a way to 
make a difference, but I, I have to selfishly say I get more out of this than I give. I really do. I meet the most incredible women um, who are just so strong and resilient and courageous. And I, I just, I, I, there's, yeah, nothing more that I could ask for in life. If I died tomorrow, I would be completely content. So, and then I do want grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. It'll hold off a little longer. Uh, wow. Yeah. That's so amazing. That is really awesome. Yeah. Really admirable. Um, yeah. Is, well, is there anything else as part of your story personally or part of, I mean, we, we'll get to talking about the event that's coming up as well, but I just wonder, yeah, any more details about the organization or anything that you'd like to share? You know, I think we covered most of it, unless you guys, like, you're, you probably represent the community who listens to you. So is there anything that you're curious about that we that we deal with? I, I think the, the one thing I, two things I would quickly say is, I want people to remember that there's there's probably about 15,000 independents. They live where we live. They work where we work. They go to, The kids go to the same schools. They're functioning fine in mainstream society. So we're not talking about them. And I think the other thing I would remember is although there are um, corruption in a lot of these communities where the hierarchy is corrupt, right, and it stems from the top down, you have thousands of people who are just living out their faith as sincerely as they possibly can because their goal is to reach the celestial kingdom to be in the presence of God. And so they're kind, they're sincere, they're loving, they're they're absolutely amazing. They're some of my dearest friends. And so I don't want you guys to leave here today thinking, oh my gosh, they're all horrible people. We should just take them all out. It's quite the opposite, right? You have a lot of the brokenness above and a lot of innocent people who are following this down below. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's um, just important yeah, to remember that, that everybody has their own individual story. And until we've heard, a, you know, a story of someone that has lived that way or believed that way, we can't really judge them for staying. We can't judge them for being part of it or having it be, you know, something that's really hard for them to walk away from. Because sometimes you think, well, just leave. This is better outside of here. But we don't know. We we have not been in there. We don't we're not leaving our family and our friends and our community and the only structure and belief system that we've known and then it must be like you said so hard for someone to show up on a a stranger's doorstep to show up on your doorstep because they thought maybe this is better than what I'm leaving behind but they didn't know if it would have been or if it was um yeah it gives some grace and some compassion to people that do stay and like you said not all of them are being abused and not all of them are under you know some sort of like um yeah control that they feel like they have to stay there's you know, there could be some middle ground there and it's hard to know, but it's just so cool that you have this, this place that can, um, be there for them when they, if they do, if they want to leave, if it's right for them, um, that there's a place for them to get the help they need in so many ways in their mental and their physical needs, um, food and shelter and all, you know, friendship, love, unconditional love and acceptance. That's super important and really cool. Yeah. Well, I'm so impressed. I didn't actually, I mean, I guess I didn't know what to expect because I didn't know a whole lot about your organization, but I think it's so neat. All the services you provide, like it's quite impressive The, you know, housing therapy, you even have a nurse practitioner. It sounds like like, so Job anyway, skills, it's yeah. really neat. Yeah. 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 Thank you. You know, I remember meeting a lady that said, Oh, you do more than one resource for these clients. You are going to drown. And I remember looking at my husband going, we just have this family and how do you do it any other way? Like you can't just put a roof over their head and say, good luck, figure the rest out. You know what I mean? And so it was super important that we had case management and people that could just kind of handhold them through 
through things and just be that encourager. No, you can do it. You'll get through it. So you'll always see on our website, people probably think we're crazy, but we're always asking for like $5 gift cards or $10 gift cards. And it's where someone passes their first class or their first test. And I'm just telling you the little encouragement notes signed from our entire team. We believe in you. You rock. You know, just simple little notes with a gift card. They think they won the lottery because they've never had anybody sell them the card. Never had anybody celebrate them in their lives. And so it's just a, it's just the coolest thing to get to be on the front lines with these people. It really is. It's, it's, it's an absolute honor. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think it's so awesome. I mean, obviously this is like people listening are making the connection, but just your life and like what you're providing these people is what was provided to you by the family, you know? So I just think it's really cool how it's, come full circle and you're offering that place of love and acceptance for them. And like you're saying, like the encouragement and that's probably, like you said earlier, the biggest thing that they need really. I mean, they need the, they need all the, the things to survive, but what comes next so that they can continue surviving. Otherwise, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know, I'm just making guesses, but I'm sure like suicide rates and I mean, all those kind of things probably are really high coming out from some of this. I can't, or something like this. I can't imagine like, you know? it's, it, we, we are hearing of a suicide one every about six months, mm-hmm. which is really disheartening. That is. It's usually because they don't have contact with their family. Yeah. If they get with our agency, it's um, it obviously goes way down. But I mean, right. I've had two now that have left our agency, and two years later, they took their lives. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh, I mean, it's horrible. It's yeah. Horrible. Well, and if they didn't have your, I'm sure trying to come out on their own and not having the kind of help that you can provide, then I'm sure it would be much higher, you know? So having this safe space for them is what's going to yeah. help them get through, you know, cause I can't even imagine, I don't know how people do it. I mean, as much as I want to tell the lady at Costco, leave, you know, leave polygamy, like, but would I have the strength to like, probably not, you know, I don't know. So anyway. And that was one of the things I was going to say to you, Lindsay, is that, you know, people always go, what do we do when we see them in the store? And I'm like, show them what they're taught about outsiders being evil is, is wrong. Just be kind yeah. say hi pick up a heavy bag for them, a case of water or whatever. When they're Just be kind because they'll avoid you like the plague because they're not supposed to talk to outsiders. And for someone to treat them as human and be kind to them is like, huh, maybe these outsiders aren't what I was taught. And so if you handed them a card and said, hey, you need to call Tanya at Holding Out Help, they would be so offended yeah. because they're like, why do they think I need help? Right. You know, right. if they're your neighbors, again, just be kind. I have neighbors call me all over Salt Lake. Got them in our cul-de-sac. What are we doing? They're gonna hurt our children. I'm like, no, no, they're not gonna hurt their children. Just take them a loaf of bread and say, "Welcome to the neighborhood. We're having game night tomorrow night. Why don't you come over and hang with us?" You know what I mean? Just simple little things that you would do with anyone else. Yeah. No, I love that. That's great. Yeah, Yeah. it really is cool just hearing your story from the beginning because you talked about learning compassion. You learned about um, unconditional love. Um, You learned about seeing hope and light during the dark times. And then you're literally doing those things for these people. And then when they say, what can we do to repay you? You just say, do that for someone else. It's just that whole pay it, pay it forward mentality that can be, yeah. could change the world. Really. If we all do something for someone else, it's powerful. We all just did one kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Everybody just did one kind of thing. Can you imagine? And, and I, I think it's important to know that this isn't the Tanya Tool Show. It really isn't. It is all the volunteers. It's all the partners. It's all, you know, our staff. It's everybody that makes this actually work. It's, it's not me. I just am the connector. 
Like, I just get to connect people. Like, here's where we're going to put you to, you know, school, and we're going to help you, you know, fill out the forms to get a grant. And, you know, I'm just the connector. And so, and what a lucky girl I am to be a connector. <laughs> I get experience at all, but it's, it's pretty awesome. I'm pretty humbled by it all. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I well, love that. but you, it's because of you. So, you know, you can take a little credit too. <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> what you've done. So, that's, that's yeah, really awesome. cool. You have all those people yeah. helping you. Yeah, that is. So maybe you could tell us about the charity, um, the fundraiser that you have coming up. Yeah. So it's March 10th. It'll be from 530 to 830. Um, at 530, doors open and there will be a silent auction. We'll be serving Italian sodas. And then uh, the doors will open about 45 minutes later and we have a full program. And I, my hope is when people leave there, they have that kind of aha moment and go, oh my gosh, I get it. So we have the New York Times bestselling author and producer, Sam Brower, who wrote Prophets Pray, and um, he was uh, one of the producers on Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. He's a PI, so he'll be speaking on what he's done with the FLDS. You have Roger Hull, who's an attorney that deals with a lot of the kids' emancipation, guardianship. He's going to speak from a legal perspective. One of our counselors is actually going to speak um, to have people understand mentally what's happening. And then... Um, we have Charlene Jeffs, who is married to Lyle Jeffs, who is in prison. She's going to share her story. And then a lot of people know Elisa Walls. She was one who was brave enough to come out and speak against Warren Jeffs and is a large reason why he's in prison today. And wow. so they're all going to be, Elisa will speak at the very end, and then we'll do a quick ask for people who want to donate, and then we close out. But it should be an amazing night. It is going to be a red carpet event. So when you come in, we're asking people to dress fancy and um, we'll have two backdrops. You can do it with your group. And then we will also have the cast on one of the backdrops that you can get pictures with the, with the cast of Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey as well. So it should be a fun night. Oh, that's wow. amazing. Where yeah. is it going to be located? It's at my church, South Mountain okay. Community Church, where you girls go. Oh, cool. yeah. So they give us the place for free. Oh, wow. There's nothing religious about it, so everyone can feel safe. Um, but they give us that um, place free every single year, and they give us a sound and AV person. They clean up the mess for us. It's wonderful. We'll do a full dinner as well um, from Catering by Bryce, who if anyone's ever had him, he's great food. Oh, so awesome. It should be a great night. Oh. So it'll be in Draper. Oh, awesome. 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 The Draper, Draper location. location. Okay. Is that a Friday or Saturday, the 10th? Friday? Is that what? It's Friday, Friday the 10th. It's Friday. Okay. Awesome. Yep, yep, yep. And then I assume like on your website, www.holdingouthelp.org, um, Facebook, Holding Out Help with uh, H-E-L-P, and then Instagram is um, Holding Out Help as well. Will th- There'll be information about that on those. Uh, yep. So, yep, they go on the website. It's just a banner. They click on the banner. You can sign up for tickets. And um, you should probably know HELP stands for Helping, Encouraging, and Loving Polygamists. So oh, I didn't know that. I love that. Did that name because they were googling help. They were googling polygamy and they couldn't find anybody to help them. And so that was that was how the name came up. So oh, awesome. oh actually, yeah, we should have asked about that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I noticed it was in all caps, so I meant to ask. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. It's it's a strange name, but there's a reason behind it. No, so. I think it's great. It's perfect. So cool. All right, and then oh, when we for those listening, we will like link to the, you know, the website and the Instagram account and the Facebook account, or we'll mention it all in the pod, podcast description. So you guys can go there and 
you know, quickly link over and sign up for the event. So, so do they, do people register to attend or donate? Like how can they get involved? Uh, they can do either. There's donate if they just want to make a, a donation. There's also um, a volunteer application on our website if they want to volunteer. Um, yeah, or they can just sign up for the event altogether okay. uh, for that night. I know, I think we can fit like 300 people in there. We're close to 200 already. Oh, so awesome. if people want to jump in, they need to jump in soon. It'll be a packed house that night. So. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, we yeah, will... this will be, yeah. we'll release this next, well, we're doing this a little early, but it'll be next Tuesday. Yeah. So the 28th. Um, so it gives hopefully a little bit of time for people to, cause we released episodes on Tuesdays. So we'll release it and hopefully people will Give help in some way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To sign up. Or... That's great. And as soon as you have that link, let me know and we'll pop it up on our social media pages as well. So we'll be sharing that. Oh, awesome. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Well, yeah. this has been awesome. Yeah. This... I've loved getting to know you. Yeah. You are honestly, just an amazing person. I'm just grateful. I know you're so busy. And anyway, just thank you for taking the time. And yeah, this is just, I know I feel like a lot of our guests, we had some mutual friend or some connection and we just really wanted to have you on. We're like, well, let's just ask and see what happens. So yeah, we really appreciate you being willing to come on. Yeah, and it's really funny because lately I've just been like, I just can't do one more thing. I can't do one more thing. And I do not know what it was about you girls, but you're going to go far. I can't explain it, but I just knew I was supposed to do this. And so thank you for having me on. And I, and I hope you get a lot more followers through this because I love people that are trying to spread light, right? That are trying to spread positive stories for the community to be able to grab hold of and make a difference. So thank you for what you guys oh, do. Oh, thanks. That's well, thank super you. nice of you. And yeah, and, we yeah. feel the same about you and yeah, you're awesome. what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. We hope we can help you get more people yeah. donating and attending and everything. Volunteering so, and all yeah. the things. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. It's, it takes a village to do this. So we need everybody involved. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Tanya. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and would love if you subscribed to the podcast and followed along as we continue hearing more inspiring stories. You can also follow us on Instagram at beautiful shifts podcast, where we will post updates with our latest interviews. We'd like to thank the band. We the lion for giving us permission to use their beautiful song. Move along for our podcast. Take a minute to listen to the song and the lyrics and enjoy. I find a way to know myself All my thoughts are mine again And begin to understand where to go Now it's time to move along Now it's time to move along Take this journey as my own Feel the strength right in my bones All I want is to believe Life is my own Life is my own I'll start again, my mind is free I can feel the truth I'll take a chance, I won't be wrong yes, Now it's time to move along Now it's time to move along
take this.